theyeshiva.net. There are three times that the Torah instructs adults to be cautious and sensitive to the behavior of their children. One is in Parshas Shemini, one is in Parshas Achirimais, and one is in Parshas Emmer. Three times and three times only that the Torah intimates, it hints to the idea that the G'daylim, the adults, ought to be cautious about the behavior of the K'tanim, the minors. One has to do with the mitzvah of the prohibition against eating shratzim, eating rodents. One has to do with the prohibition against eating blood. And one has to do with the prohibition of koyhanim becoming impure as a result of contact with a corpse, a lifeless body. What do I mean three times? What am I talking about? Generally speaking, there is no mitzvah, there's no biblical mitzvah of chinuch, meaning there is a Torah mitzvah that a father ought to teach Torah to his children. There's a mitzvah on Pesach that parents ought to tell the story to their children. But the daily performance of mitzvahs by children below the age of bar mitzvah or bas mitzvah, 12 or 13, 12 for girls and 13 for males, for boys, is not a biblical commandment. The rabbis instructed parents, fathers, to train their children in the daily performance of mitzvahs when they reach a certain age, the appropriate age for the particular mitzvahs. But biblically, there's no mitzvah to train your child in the performance of mitzvahs. How about, the question is, are parents therefore allowed to feed their non-children, feed their children non-kosher food? That is the question. True, rabbinically, there is a mitzvah to educate the children in the mitzvahs, but that's only rabbinic, and it's also when they reach a certain age, not younger than that. But what about a baby, for example? The baby is not commanded to do any of the mitzvahs until he or she does not reach a certain age of maturity. The expression of chazal, katan, lav, bar, A minor, you can't expect and obligate him or her because they are children, they're young. And therefore, they're not obligated. So the question is, they're not obligated. Rabbinically, I have to train them in mitzvahs, but only from a certain age up. And even from that age, biblically, I'm not obligated. And younger than age, I'm not that age, I'm not obligated. Does this mean, for example, that they're completely excluded from the whole realm of mitzvahs? So, for example, even if there's no danger, life, even if a life is not in danger, can I, for example, feed my child? What about a baby, an infant, non-kosher food? One question. On this, the Torah itself produces three psukim, three sources. One in Parsha Shmini, all in the book of Ayikra, all in the book of Leviticus. One Shmini, one Achirimais, and one Emmer. That clarifies this reality. And this is clarified, Rashi even quotes it in the beginning of Emmer, and it's based on a Gemara, Masechta Yavamis, Tafkuf Yudalad, Yavamis, page 114, for those who want to look it up. And I'll go through the three sources. At the end of Parsha Shmini it says, Do not eat rodents that crawl on the ground, crawl on the earth. Do not eat them, because they are abominable. They are abominable. They are disgusting to you. You should not eat them. This is, of course, an obligation directed to adults, to men, to women, to every Jewish adult. But the Gemara says, in a Sefer Torah, in a written scroll, there's no nekudos, there are no vowels. So how do we know how to pronounce the words? 
How do we know how to pronounce the words? This had to come from tradition. For example, it says, Don't cook a goat in the milk of its mother. This says three times in Chumash. Three times it says, But how do you know it's spelled Bachalev? How do you know it's pronounced Bachalev? Maybe it has to be pronounced Bechalev Imoy. Don't cook a goat in the fat of its mother. Which would, of course, be so exciting because then cheeseburgers would be permissible. Wouldn't that be an extraordinary contribution to Orthodox Jewish life? Nonetheless, I don't mean to be the party pooper, but nonetheless, we don't pronounce it even though it's spelled in an identical fashion, Bez, Ches, Lamed, Bez. But it's not Bechelev, in the fat of its mother. It's in the milk of its mother. Bachalev, as we say, Chalev or Chalov. How do we know this? In the Sefer Torah you would never know it. But that's why the biblical text had to be accompanied with an oral tradition simply to pronounce the words. Because pronunciation often has an impact on meaning, on content. So this is part of the oral tradition with which the text was given. But it's interesting that the Chazal understood that whenever a word is written in the Sefer Torah, and it's pronounced one way, but it could be pronounced in a different way, that is part of the meaning. So that's a very fascinating idea in the study of Torah. When a word is pronounced one way, but potentially... It could be pronounced another way, and that's how it's written. That potential pronunciation is part of the overall meaning. For example, the words I just quoted, at the end of Shmini, Leviticus 11.42, Lamed Aleph Membeis. I know how to pronounce it because it says in Chumash, with Nekudas, with vowels. When I read it, I can also pronounce it as, Don't feed them. To others. Loisoichlum means don't eat them on your own. Loisaachilum in Hebrew grammar, in Diktuk of Loshan Kaidish, means lahachil is not to eat. Leachil is to eat. Lahachil is to feed, to nourish somebody else, to give food to somebody else. Loisoichlum is don't eat them. Loisaachilum is don't feed them. So from here we learn that the Torah says don't only not eat rodents, don't feed them. Who would I feed it to? Who am I feeding to? The adult is not allowed to eat it. The baby. So this is source number one. The first time we have in Torah, the obligation on the adult to be sensitive to the state of the child. If a child goes and he or she eats themselves what they eat, they ate. They're not obligated. Even rabbinically, the mitzvah of chinuch applies only once they reach the age of chinuch. Not little babies. But to feed it to my child, that's an absolute biblical prohibition. Source one. Source two. In Parshas Acherimois, the Torah says many times a person should not eat blood. Call nefesh mikem loy toichaldam. Every soul of yours should not eat blood. But it already said earlier, do not eat blood. When it says again, which means 
No soul of yours should eat blood. So first of all, it's already repeated. It's said before. Second of all, it says, Kol nefesh. The exclusion, the prohibition against eating blood applies to every soul. From here the Chazal learned again, Lahazir g'doylin al haktanim. There's a prohibition for the adult to give blood to a child, even in cultures where they would eat and consume blood. And here's a little baby, the third source is the opening of Parshas Emmer, Leviticus 21, and this also comes from a very interesting, peculiar structure of the opening Pasuk. I'm going to quote. The opening verse of Emmer is, God speaks to Moses, and he says to him, Say to the Koyhanim, the sons of Aaron, and say to them, You should not allow yourselves to become impure, contaminated by contact with a corpse. This is an obligation on the Koyhan that he must maintain to the best of his ability his spiritual purity. Another Jew may subject himself or herself to impurity. It's just if I'm in a state of impurity, there are certain halachas. I can't just walk into the Beis HaMikdash. I can't just eat holy food. There's a process of how I cleanse myself. Whether it's the mikveh or other forms of cleansing, sometimes more intense forms of cleansing. Sometimes a living wellspring was necessary, not only rainwater, sometimes the ashes of the red heifer were necessary, as discussed in Chukas. But that is every other Jew. A koyin is not allowed to put himself in a state of tumah. If it happens, he has to cleanse himself, of course. But he is not allowed to be metami himself to a corpse, which is why the Torah goes on to say that when he goes to a funeral and wants to touch the corpse, touch the bed, stand in the same tent like the corpse, carry the corpse, he is not allowed to do it. Besides the seven relatives where the Torah allows him to become impure, which is an exception. His father's funeral, his mother's funeral, his spouse's funeral, his brother, his sister, and a son or a daughter. Heaven forbid. So thus, the Kayhain is prohibited to allow himself to become Tommy, and that's why another funeral, another corpse, he, he could be outside, but he cannot touch, he cannot allow himself, subject himself to become Tommy to the corpse, even though later he could become clean. But when you look at the first Pasuk, it says, Hashem said to Moshe, say to the Koyanim, the sons of Aaron, and say to them. Why does it repeat? Just say. Say to the Koyanim, the sons of Aaron, don't contaminate yourself. No. Say to the Koyanim, the sons of Aaron, and say to them. When somebody listens to such a sentence, it should disturb you. There's something off. It's not the way you communicate. You don't say, go please tell your family and tell them. You don't do that. If you're meticulous and precise in your communication. (laughs) If not, then you could say things 29 times. People do that all the time, right? People do that all the time, right? People do that all the time, right? Thank you for the affirmation. But if you are precise, huh? Yes, if it's ADD, then you do it 49 times. Yes, I know. 
I know. I teach. <laughs> Often. <laughs> but somebody who is precise in communication, you don't repeat yourself. That's right, you don't repeat yourself. That's why I'm not going to repeat myself. And hence, when we hear a Pasuk saying, say to your family and say to them, that was redundant. Say to your family and tell me what I should say. Somebody once, uh, somebody once gave me advice about speaking. So he said, he said, get up, tell them what you're going to tell them, then tell them, then tell them what you told them and sit down. Anything that does not fit into one of those three categories, delete, scratch. You don't get up and start saying, I don't know why I was invited to speak. You ever heard those people? I don't know why I was invited. Really? I also don't know. I really don't know. Right? Or, or after all the speeches, I have nothing to add. And I get excited. That's great. So add nothing. That would be a wonderful addition to the event if you add nothing. But somehow, from having nothing to add, 45 minutes later, the person is still adding nothing. Right? Okay. So, so whenever we read, of course it's true. It's called fake humility. It's false humility that people don't buy. But people think they have to say it in order to leave a good impression, but it's false. It's not real. If you really believe you have nothing to say, you shouldn't be saying anything. You do believe you have something to say. So say it as fast as possible, and let's move on with the program. Somebody once introduced a speaker. He said, this speaker doesn't need an introduction. He needs an ending. <laughs> okay. <laughs> For your next speech, you could do that in the opening. So whenever we hear a Pasuk that has this redundancy, the rabbis, the sages who had their antennas closely attuned to the text, when they sensed and they detected anything strange, awkward, off, they immediately pounced on it, literally. They jumped on it to try to deduce what was the divine message being intimated here. So you have a Pasuk, people read Chumash, they don't appreciate how the text has been read by Jews, especially by students, serious, assiduous students of Judaism. So when Hashem tells Moshe, say to the Kayanim, the sons of Aaron, and say to them, that means he's trying to add something. What is he trying to add? Rashi says, quoting the Gemara in Yevamas, Lahazir G'doylim al Haktanim, to caution the adults concerning the minors. To caution, to warn, to admonish, or to instruct the G'doylim, the adults, meaning the G'doylim, the older ones, al-haktanim, on the smaller ones, on the children, even infants, even babies, that they have to make sure not to impurify them. So a Kayan has a little baby Kayan. He's not yet involved in the Avoid. He's not going to the base. I mean, he's a little baby, still at home with mommy. And there's no obligation on the mitzvahs for him. He's under by mitzvah. Even rabbinically, he's under the age of Chinuch. But the Torah says for me, the Kayan, the father, to cause this child to become impure is absolutely prohibited. That's why God says not tell the Kayanim, tell the Kayanim and say to them. I'm telling them two things. One is a message about themselves and one is a message about their relationship to their children. And from these three psukim, the Pasuk about not feeding rodents, not feeding blood, 
and not, uh, not causing impurity to the baby koyhanim, from here we have the paradigm for all other mitzvahs in the Torah. That whenever Torah prohibits something to the adults, even though children are not obligated, but the parents are forbidden to actively feed that to the children. So for example, how about shrimp? or lobster, or any non-kosher fish, or non-kosher meat, or swine, or whatever it may be. A little, little baby. He's not obligated. She's not obligated. I'm not allowed to feed it to them. Why? From these three mitzvahs, we have a paradigm, we have a binyan av, for all other mitzvahs in the Torah, that even if they're not obligated, and even if they're at a very young age, where there's no chinuch yet, nonetheless, I cannot feed them something that the Torah prohibits and cause them to do that, even though they're not doing it, I'm doing it, but I'm doing it with them, and therefore I'm not allowed to do it. Which is a very interest, which brings up a very curious question. And that is, why is it that this fundamental idea, which basically represents the idea of chinuch in its earliest formation, the way it is in the biblical text itself, in the Torah itself, the idea that the adult is responsible for the child, the Torah from 613 mitzvahs, chose these three. Not eating rodents, not eating blood, and not causing the young child to become spiritually impure. You and I know that most of us are not tempted to eat rodents, right? Some of us are tempted to eat more than others, present company excluded, I'm talking about myself, but not rodents. Blood as well. Okay. Yet the Torah chooses this message of education, particularly concerning these three mitzvahs, rodents, blood, and tumas meis. And from here, we learn it for the rest of the Torah. We deduce it from here to all the other mitzvahs, lahazir g'daylum alaktanem, to caution the adults about the minors. Why these three? There's another pasuk in Parshas Emmer, which also is relevant to this stage of time of the year, from the morrow, from the morrow of the Shabbos, mimacharas means tomorrow, mimacharas Shabbos. From the morrow of the Shabbos, meaning the day after Shabbos, you should count for yourselves seven complete weeks, which makes up forty-nine days. Following which, of course, you have the fiftieth day celebrated as the holiday known as Shavuos. The source of this is Parshas Emmer. What does Mimacharas HaShabbos mean? Start the count the day after Shabbos. This created one of the great disputes during the Second Temple era, the Second Beis Hamikdash, between the sages and a group known as the Baitusim, or the Sadducees. The Baitusim, the Tztukim, a very large sect of Jews living during the Second Temple era in the Holy Land, who fought and debated the rabbinical sages about many topics, but this was one of the very hot topics. They argued, what is Shabbos? We all know what Shabbos is. Shabbos is the seventh day of the week. Saturday, Shabbos. When the Torah says, you should start counting the day after Shabbos, the morrow of the Shabbos, the the morrow of the Shabbos, like tomorrow. When is it? Sunday. So they argued that the counting of the Oimer begins always on a Sunday. Always. It says clearly, it must begin on a Sunday, the day after Shabbos, which is the literal interpretation. Which of course always means 
that Shavuos always coincides with Sunday. Because if you start counting on a Sunday, you count seven complete weeks, 49 days. So if you start Sunday, the first week ends on Shabbos. You do this for another six weeks. The last day, day 49, ends on Shabbos. The Shavuos will always be on Sunday. No questions asked. There cannot be a year, according to them, when Shavuos is not on Sunday. In fact, the Gemara says in Menachah 65 Samachai, they even justified it and garbed it with an emotional justification. One of the great Sadducees, an old man, told Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai, the representative of the rabbinical sages, the Talmudic sages, he said to him, of course this is the way it has to be. Moshe Rabbeinu loved the Jewish people. Moshe was an oy of Yisrael. And he wanted that the Jewish people should not have a one-day holiday, they should have an extended weekend. If you start counting the Oymer in the middle of the week, so then Shavuos is going to be in the middle of the week, so it's a one-day holiday, come on. One day of cheesecake and lasagna, worthless. Moshe Rabbeinu cared about the Jewish people, so he always wanted Shavuos to be on Sunday. If Shavuos is on Sunday, I'm a chaya. You already take off Thursday afternoon, you go on a trip, you go to the hotel, you have a Shabbos, you have a Sunday, you have a two-day Yom Tif, it's a whole different experience. So Rabbi Yechina ben Zakkai says, if Moshe loved the Jewish people, why did he wander, why did he schlep them through the desert for 40 years? Fascinating exchange in Gemara, which I convey to bring out this point that they believed Svira Sa'imer always begins the day after Shabbos on Sunday, and hence Shavuos begins on Sunday. The Chazal said that's not the case. Mimacharas HaShabbos means Mimacharas Yomtev. Shabbos here is not referring to the seventh day of the week. It's referring to the day of rest, which is the first day of Pesach. Mimacharas HaShabbos means the day after Yomtev. The day after the first day of Yomtev Pesach called Shabbos in this Pesach, that's when you start counting, which is what we do in practicality. When do we start counting the Oimer? The second night of Pesach. In other words, Mimacharas HaShabbos, one day, the day after the first day of Yom Tif. Remember in Eretz Yisrael, there's only one day, Yom Tif, whether it's Shavuos or Pesach. The second day of Pesach is already Chal Hamoyet, because the whole Pesach extends for seven days. So Mimacharas HaShabbos means the first day of Chal Hamoyet, which is the day after Shabbos, the day after Yom Tif. Here in the Diaspora, we have two days Yom Tif, so it happens to be that we count the second night Yom Tif. In Eretz Yisrael, it's already Chal Hamoyet, it's already after the first day of Yom Tif ended, and it's a whole different status of holidays. Chal Hamoyet is not like Yom Tif. And the Talmud goes on to discuss many, many proofs, how they prove this. The Memacharas HaShabbos does not mean Shabbos, it means Yom Tif. That's what they proved. One of the interesting proofs is, <coughs> it says, Sheva Shabbosais Tmimois Tiyena, it should be seven complete weeks. Why does the Torah have to say seven complete weeks? If it always starts on Sunday, so seven weeks will be complete weeks. <laughs> if you start on Sunday and you have seven weeks, it, why does it have to say seven complete weeks? The answer is, if it starts in the middle of the week, now the Torah has to say seven complete weeks. If the Torah says seven weeks, what will you think? Finish this week and then do another six weeks, right? The Torah says, Sheva Shabbos is Tmimois. Because sometimes it starts in the middle of the week. So the Torah says, you can't just finish this week and do another six weeks. You have to have seven complete weeks. Seven weeks day to day, which means 49 days. 
this was a very interesting proof brought in the Panam Yafis. There's many other proofs in the Gemara and in the Rambam. The fact is that the oral interpretation, the oral tradition, just like Bachalev Imoy, is not Bechalev Imoy, it's Bachalev Imoy. Mimacharas Hashabbos was understood always as Mimacharas Yomtev, with many proofs of the text as well. The Tzedukim could not handle this. And this was the reason that there was a very interesting public ceremony that was done in the days of the Beis Hamikdash, known as Ketziras HaOimer, the harvesting of the barley. The counting of the Oimer, what does Oimer mean? You know what Oimer means, right? Oimer is a measurement. It's a volume of flour. A volume of flour, basically the volume of Mem Gimel Beitzim, Chamesh Beitzim, 43, the volume of 43.2 eggs. That's called an Oimer. It's also known as a Sirius Ha'efa. The second day of Pesach, in the morning, they would take fresh barley that has just been harvested the night before. They would take it to the Beis HaMikdash. They would grind up the barley, grind the kernels into flour. They used to put the flour into a sieve, into 13 sieves, 13 sifters to refine the flour 13 times. And then they would take from this flour the volume of 43.2 eggs. The Kayan would take a three-finger full of flour Barley flour, burn it on the altar. The rest was baked as matzahs and eaten by the kayanim. This was called the carbon oimer. From this day, we start counting the oimer. Sphira sa'oimer, this is the count. When did they harvest the barley? The night before they brought the carbon, which would have been Mitzayi, the first day of Yom Tif, the first night of Chalamayin in Eretz Yisrael. Now here is the interesting issue. According to the Sadducees, that was always on a Saturday night. Because Sphere Simon starts on Sunday, so you're always harvesting it Mitzvah Shabbos. According to the rabbis, that can happen any night of the week, including Friday night. If the second day of Pesach is Shabbos, you have to harvest it Friday night. Harvesting is forbidden on Shabbos. But the Torah says that you can harvest the Oimer any day of the week. So therefore, the harvesting of the barley was a public, grandiose ceremony. Everybody used to gather from all the places to the fields and they would harvest the barley. The man with the sickle standing by the barley, he would say, should I cut? Should I cut? Should I cut? And the Sanhedrin, the leaders of the court would say, hein, 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 yes, yes, yes. Cut, cut, cut. That's where they got it from. And the barley was harvested. Okay. The barley was reaped and then it was offered the next morning. Carbon Eimer. This was only done because they wanted to show that it could be done even Friday night. According to the Sadducees, how can it be done Friday night? It was never done Friday night. You didn't need it Friday night. It was always Mitzvah Shabbos. Why are you cutting it Friday night? They would not allow it. So this became a huge machlaikis, a huge dispute. The question I want to ask today is, why were they so obsessed about this Shabbos not meaning Yom Tov? What did they care? Who really cares if he starts Firas HaOimer on Sunday? Or you started on a Tuesday, or on another day of the week. Okay, they said, Moshe Rabbeinu loves us. He wants to give us two days Shavuos. Shoy, he'll have an extra day. Because of this, they had to create such a ruckus, create such a dispute and such a fight, all about the word Shabbos. Why do you care if the word Shabbos means Yom Tif? They said, no way. It means only Shabbos, not Yom Tif. This was the core of the debate. According to them, Mimacharas HaShabbos means Saturday, Shabbos. According to the Chazal, Memacharos HaShabbos means Yom Tif. Shabbos can include Yom Tif. 
what is the theme of the debate. For this, we have to understand the major difference between Shabbos and Yom Tov. If you remember the davening of Shabbos, every davening every day, the Shemayin Esra of every day has 19 blessings. The first three and the last three are generic, everyday Shabbos, Yom Tov, Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, the first three and the last three. The first three of praise and the last three of gratitude. The middle ones alter. In the weekdays, you have three in the beginning, three at the end, that's six, plus you have six plus another, 12 initially, today it's 13 because they added a 19th, 12 or 13 middle blessings in which everyone discusses needs of people individually and collectively. We ask for wisdom. We ask for health, rifa'enu. We ask for sustenance, livelihood, baruch aleinu, etc. Shmak which you ask for whatever you want, you pray for whatever you want. You ask for whatever you want. But these are the prayers, the blessings inside Shmena Esra that are not generic to every day because on Shabbos, we substitute it. We substitute this blessing, these 13 blessings, with one blessing for Shabbos and it ends... Mekadesh HaShabbos. Baruch HaTashem Mekadesh HaShabbos. That's true Friday night, Shabbos morning, Shabbos afternoon. On Yom Tif, all the Yom Tovim, we also change that middle text of the blessing. But we don't finish Mekadesh HaShabbos. You remember how we finish on Yom Tif? Mekadesh Yisrael V'Hazmanah. Blessed are you Hashem who sanctifies the Jewish people and the times. Why don't we say that on Shabbos? Why don't we say, Baruch Atah Hashem, Mekadesh Yisrael Shabbos? Why Yom Tif do we suddenly remember that Jews are holy? Shabbos, we don't remember that Jews are holy. Why? So the Gemara explains in Meseches Zion, the reason has to do with the difference of Shabbos and Yom Tif, and it's a very fascinating difference. Shabbos, Mekadshav Akaima. Yom Tif, Yisrael Inu de I'll explain Shabbos is wholly irrelevant of the contribution of any man or woman. The seventh day comes, it's a holy day. Ah, you were sleeping, I was sleeping. Sure, Friday afternoon. No difference, Shabbos comes, it's holy. The holiness of Shabbos has nothing to do with any activity or conscious effort by any individual or any community. From the beginning of creation, the seventh day of the week, has been established as a day of holiness. As the sun sets over the horizon of Friday, a sacredness enters into the atmosphere of the universe. An island in time is created, a transcendental oasis called Shabbos. You may be ready, you may not be ready. You may have done something, you may have not done something. You may have slept through the whole week. Shabbos is a holiness that is established from heaven, from above. It's organic to the very system of creation. Which is, by the way, why the week, the Kuzari says, why the week has seven days. It's really a strange phenomenon. Nothing astronomically happens after seven days to justify a unit in time ending and a unit in time beginning. The month, for example, marks the orbit of the moon. The year marks the orbit of the sun, the lunar orbit, the month, the, the, the solar orbit, the month, the lunar orbit. What happens after seven days? What happens after seven days? Nothing. 
In fact, there were attempts in history, not long ago by Stalin and the Soviet Union, to extend a week, make a week 10 days. 10 is a much better number. It's a wholesome number. And there's no reason not to. We're used to Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Friday. Why not 10-day week? Nothing happens after seven days. But most such attempts throughout history, in fact, all attempts failed. Somehow, the week maintained its seven-day reality. You know why? Because it's rooted already in the world of Adam and Chava, Adam and Eve, in the beginning of creation. There is something that happened after seven days. It's not astronomically calcul- It's not astronomically conspicuous like a month or a year. But the unit of time is divided into seven days. Because creation happened in seven days, six days and Shabbos. So that's a reality that is not dependent on human activity. That's Shabbos. What about Yom Tov? There's an interesting story. The Ruzhina, the Heilike Ruzhina, Rabbi Sral of Ruzhin, was a child. And he was learning in the yeshiva. In Gemara, Meseches Shabbos, on Tractate Shabbos, page 69, there's a question. If somebody is hiking in a desert, and they lose count of time, and they don't know which day it is, what do you do? I would add, I would just insert into Gemara, and their cell phone died. Just, you just have to add that. Okay. So they're hiking in the desert, and they don't know which day it is. What do you do? So even if they have food and they have drinks, so their life is not in danger, but what are they supposed to do in terms of Shabbos? So there are two opinions. Do they count six days, and then they observe the seventh day? Or do they observe one day, and then they count six days? It depends on, if you look at Shabbos from the perspective of the world, or from the perspective of Adam. From the perspective of Adam, who was created on Friday, Shabbos was his first day. From the perspective of the universe, Shabbos was the seventh day. So what do we follow? Okay, there's an argument in the Gemara. When the Ruzhiner was a little child, he was learning this in the yeshiva, and his teacher went through this case. He raised his hand and he says, Ich nicht. I don't understand. So the teacher explained it to him again. He says, Ich nicht. I don't understand. He says, The man is hiking in the desert, or the woman, he doesn't know when Shabbos is. He says, I don't understand. He says, what, what, what's the, what's the problem here? So at some point he says, I don't understand, how could you not know when Shabbos is? Megita kuk, Megita kuk afen himmel, or mezetas Shabbos. You raise your eyes to heaven, and you see that it's Shabbos. <laughs> this, this little boy grew up to become one of the greatest spiritual masters of his day, known as the Heilike Ruziner, Rabbi Stroll of Ruzhin. So when he was a child, he didn't understand what it means. You don't know when Shabbos is. You could see that it's a different world on Shabbos. You could sense it, you can detect it. But that is a reality in the world, irrelevant of human activity. Then there is Yom Tif. Yom Tif is something else. Yom Tif is a different institution. Let's take, for example, the Yom Tif. Let's do the first Yom Tif, Pesach. is on the 15th day of Nisan. What makes this the 15th day of Nisan? What makes it? The answer is Rosh Chodesh. Rosh Chodesh is the first day of Nisan, the head of the month, the first day of the month, and you start Rosh Chodesh day one, and you count two weeks, it's 14 days, and the next day is day 15. But who makes Rosh Chodesh Rosh Chodesh? How does it become Rosh Chodesh? And the answer is, this was the job of the people. The moon does its thing. So yes, the moon finishes its orbit once a month, that's true. It takes the moon 29 and a half days, approximately, to orbit the earth. The moon is, of course, much smaller than the earth. But the moon orbits around the earth. It takes the moon 29 and a half days to complete, approximately, to complete that orbit. At the end of 29 and a half days, 
the moon is directly between the sun and the earth. And that's why we don't see the moon. Why? Because the moon, the half of the ball of the moon that we would see is facing the sun. And it's away from us. And then that's called the moilad, which means the conjunction between sun, moon, and earth. And hence we can't see the moon. And then the moon starts moving away from the sun. And we see that little crescent, that little tiny a sickle, that little tiny crescent of the moon, and as the moon moves further and further and further away, we get to see more and more of it until the 15th day of the month when the moon is in its furthest position from the sun. So we have the earth between the sun and the moon, and therefore we could see the half a moon that's facing the sun, and we get to see a beautiful moon, which we call a full moon, which is of course only a half a moon, because the moon is like a basketball, although somewhat larger than a basketball. And so... That, that's a fact, that's an astronomical fact. But what makes Rishchidosh, what makes Rishchidosh is that witnesses came and they observed the new moon and they testified in the court that they saw the new moon and Bezdin listened to their testimony, cross-examined them, investigated them and then said, Mekudosh, 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 this day is holy, it's the first day of the month. And now the 15th day of the month becomes Pesach. The sixth day of Sivan becomes Shavuos. The fifteenth day of Tishrei becomes Sukkot. The tenth day of Tishrei becomes Yom Kippur. The first day of Tishrei becomes Rosh Hashanah. Only because the Jewish courts established and they made the Rosh Chodesh holy. What if they wouldn't do it? Then there's no day fifteen. There's no Rosh Chodesh. There's no day fifteen. There's just random days going by and by. It's not a holy day. If it's not a holy day, you're allowed to work. There's no prohibition to eat chametz. Pesach only happens because there's a Rosh Chodesh. Same as Yom Kippur. When do I fast? I don't just fast on a random day. I have to fast on the 10th day of Tishrei. For there to be a 10th day of Tishrei, I need a first day of Tishrei. For there to be a first day of Tishrei, there has to be Rosh Chodesh, which is what it means that you have a first day of the month that's established as a day of the month. The moon doesn't announce this is the first day of the month. The moon is just busy orbiting. The moon is just doing its thing. It's our declaration of this day as Rosh Chodesh that makes it the first day of the month. And hence makes it holy, and hence makes the following days what they are supposed to be. In other words, who creates the holiness of Yom Tif? The Jewish people. There's a big difference. Shabbos, we don't create the holiness of Shabbos. It happens. Yom Tif, it doesn't happen. Even today, you might ask, there's no witnesses coming to Besdin. Today we use a calendar, but it's not so simple. Till the year 358 after the Common Era. 358 after the Common Era. Which means, hundreds of years after the destruction of the temple, which was in 70, 358. So you're dealing hundreds of years later, there were witnesses still coming to the Sanhedrin, to the Supreme Court, every month, and they would make Rishchidosh. Then they saw that the courts are going to be abolished, the Jews are being dispersed. And what did they do? With their astronomical calculations, a man named Reb Hillel established a calendar that could work for thousands of years based on the astronomical calculations of the moon's orbit, every single month, 29 days, 30 days, but then they did something else. The Sanhedrin, the Supreme Court, sanctified every Rosh Chodesh till Mashiach comes. They made every Rosh Chodesh holy till Mashiach comes, when the system will go back to the old system. When witnesses come and observe the moon and testify, they made it holy. So today, we celebrate Pesach, Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, because Rosh Chodesh is holy. What makes it holy? They're not doing it that month, but it was already done in 358 after the Common Era. They sanctified every Rosh Chodesh. Now you understand why Shabbos we say Mekadesh HaShabbos. Yom Tif we say Mekadesh Yisrael V'Hazmanen. 
Why don't we say Yom Tif Mekadesh Hazmanim, just like Mekadesh HaShabbos, or Mekadesh HaPesach, or Mekadesh HaSukkot, or Mekadesh? The answer is, because Shabbos, God sanctifies Shabbos. Yom Tif, Yisrael Inu Demekadshinu Lezmanim, the Gemara says in Beitzah. It's the Jewish people who make the time holy. So therefore we say Mekadesh Yisrael Vehazmanim. He sanctifies the Jewish people and the time. If the Jews were not holy, they couldn't make it holy. Only someone that is holy can make time holy. If I am unholy, I can't give to time what I don't have. Because they are holy, they have Kedusha. They have sacredness inside of themselves. They can take time and sanctify it. The time can become enshrined in the immortal hilo of sacredness. But that can only happen because they are Kaddish. So that's why in the tefillah, in the prayers of holidays, we say, Mekadesh Yisrael Azmanim. He sanctifies the Jewish people and the times, because it's the sanctification of the Jews that then could make Kedusha in the Zman. Now you understand why the Sadducees had such a hard time with comparing Shabbos to Yom Tif? They didn't want Mimacharas HaShabbos should mean Mimacharas Yom Tif. They said Mimacharas HaShabbos means Shabbos, not Yom Tif. The rabbis argued, no, Yom Tif is called Shabbos. They said, no way, Yom Tif is not called Shabbos. Shabbos is Shabbos and Yom Tif is Yom Tif. And if the Torah wants to say Yom Tif, it would not use the word Shabbos. Why were they so august about this? Why were they so... Why were they so um, zealous? Why were they so zealous about this differentiation? They said, don't compare ever Shabbos to Yom Tif. How could you? Shabbos is divine. Yom Tif is human. The two should never be compared to each other. Why? What was behind this argument? Let's go back to the three sources of education. You still with me? The rodents, the blood, and the impurity. Why these three mitzvahs? When you talk about education, when you talk about children, if you would go to every conference that exists on education, which basically means every time two women meet. (laughs) Basically. Every breakfast, every lunch, every dinner. And if your husband is in the mood, whenever a woman meets with her man as well. Everybody knows the three women in Palm Beach who would sit down and meet in the afternoon and one sat down and said, Oi, and the other one said, Oi, vey, and the third one said, Oi, gotten you, riboyna shaloylam, and the fourth one said, Did we not make up? We're not talking about our children today. <laughs> but if you would go to every conference on education, every conversation on education, and some of you already this morning were on the phone, for more than 20 minutes discussing education. This one or that one. Young ones or older ones. But the issue of children or grandchildren or whatever the case is. Go to every seminar, workshop, convention, book, volumes of books, retreats, all about education. You will note that Not, of course, to generalize challenges and problems, which is always an error. But if we are to generalize, you would note that when parents or teachers or people discuss the challenges of education, the challenges of raising 
children to be happy, wholesome human beings, infused, infused with (coughs) an approach to life that will give them the ability to live life to the fullest, three challenges will often be invoked. These three challenges could be subdivided into hundreds, into thousands, into myriads, and if we really want, into millions and billions. But generally, to sum up the concerns of people, we're dealing with three dynamics. And again, these three, I say in a very general, are very general concepts that can then be subdivided and sub-subdivided, etc., etc. The first issue we often hear is that children or teenagers are angry, resentful. Some of us call it an attitude. There's a lot of anger. Maybe you want to associate it with pain. You want to associate it with resentment. I'm not now even addressing the sources. The sources could be so diverse and so many. But there's a certain anger. And of course, is that for me? And how do you want me to drink it? But it's fine. Thank you. No problem. I have. (laughs) Abracadabra. And you see it when you know it. You could see that anger. You could see that blaze. You could see that ire. And of course, anger produces anxiety, produces a lot of indifference, and more produces a desire to do exact the opposite of what the person I'm angry at would love for me to do. It's a way of getting back. It's a way of getting even. It's a way of establishing equilibrium. It's a way of discovering power and many other psychological voids and needs that it serves. Issue number two. Addiction. Bad habits. People entrenched in certain ways certain behaviors, certain things, and they really can't get out of it. Today, people will constantly talk about the dangers of technology in the sense of how it really creates people who are completely addicted to it. The other day, there was a rabbi doing a funeral. In the cemetery, he was officiating a funeral, and a young man sitting in the front row says, Rabbi, Rabbi, before you begin, what's the Wi-Fi code in the cemetery? The rabbi gets upset. Respect for the dead, he shouts. The guy says, that's great. Is that all in lowercase? So, you'll sometimes have a situation. (laughs) I just got it. You sometimes, (laughs) I like it, 
I don't know about you, but I like it. <laughs> You'll have a situation where sometimes it's actually painful to see. I was, I was at an event, and I was, there was a Malava Malka there, and I walked by a table, and there was a whole family sitting at a table, a father, a mother, and a few children, and everybody was on their phones. Nobody was communicating with each other. Sometimes you have situations where mothers or fathers officially spend time with children, but every few seconds they have to text or check a text or check a website or shop or check this or check that, check that. And there's no attentiveness. There's no mindfulness. There's no quality time. There's no relationship. Absolutely no relationship. Yeah? This, I'm, not even talk, I'm not talking about content here. I'm talking about the very addiction to these types of devices that don't allow people to spend time with each other. That's why it's a mitzvah, that at a certain point of the day you take your phone, and you don't put it on vibrate, you put it on off, and you hide it somewhere, and for a few hours, it's gone. It's obsolete. It doesn't exist. Somebody asked me today, if Averman, uh, somebody asked me recently, if Averman Hachai is still an applicable mitzvah. Averman Hachai means taking a living limb away from an animal and eating it. I said, yeah, taking away somebody's iPhone <laughs> is Averman Hachai. In fact, sometimes people tell me that on Shabbos they hear it vibrate. They're so used to it, they're so used to it, there's no life without it. Now, sometimes you have children who all they do is they play whether it's on screens or on phones or other things, or other types of addiction, especially when they get older. And once a person is entrenched in something, even if it's not, doesn't have the official title of an addiction, it's very difficult to deal with them. You can't even get their attention. There's nobody to talk to. It's very difficult to talk. I sometimes talk to people, yeah? It's the middle of the week, and everybody's on their phones. A guy came to see me the other day. He wanted an appointment. He said it's an emergency. An emergency. I actually had to travel, but I said, fine, I have a few minutes, come in. And it was difficult for me. He sits down. Ten seconds into the conversation, he gets a text. He says, excuse me. Then, of course, he had to check the news. 20-second lady's checking the news. Fifth, 40-second lady. I couldn't even judge him. I saw that this is his entire life. Now, I don't need him to nurture me, but I thought about his kids. Kids don't have a father who's emotionally present. Doesn't exist in their life. If he comes to me because it's an emergency, and he had, we had 15 minutes, and this is what he was doing most of the time, I thought to myself, this is with me and I'm an adult. So you have here people who are completely overwhelmed. They don't have space anymore for anything. They don't even know who they are. It used to be, you'll forgive me, that there were places called private spaces. Remember those spaces? You used to go in with yourself and yourself only. Today, the whole world is there. The private spaces where Winston Churchill said he wrote his best speeches in those places. He wouldn't be able to write speeches there today. He would get a briefing from the parliament that Germany just invaded. How can he write speeches? There's no such a thing as private space. No such a thing. Va'avadetem meheira. It says in you have to lose the urge to do everything mehera. Fast, 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 fast. Schnell, schnell. Lose it. Be present. Be mindful. That's the second great challenge of education. Especially in a generation where there's so much 
addiction. I'm talking about technology. And then there's other forms of addiction. When they get older, it becomes extremely difficult. And then there's the third element in a third challenge with children. And that is, I'm not interested. Depression, apathy, indifference, sadness. They once asked somebody, they once asked a Jew, what's the difference between ignorance and apathy? He said, I don't know and I don't care. Just apathy. It's a sense of deadness. I'm not angry. I'm not not angry. How's life? Deadness. Complete deadness. So when the Torah wants to speak about chinuch, it chooses three mitzvahs. Shrotzim, rodents, blood, and tumas meis. Those are the three mitzvahs it chooses to tell the adults that they're capable of reaching out to the youngsters. Why these three? The Gemara says in Tractate Hyrius, page 11, that rodents, the normal human being is disgusted by the concept of eating rodents. Even if you're starving and I give you a snake, I'm not sure you're going to run to it. And the same is true with a frog, a lizard, an ant, or a mosquito. Even when you're desperate, and the same with other rodents and insects. Why then would a child want to eat it? That the Torah has to say, make sure you don't give it. Why would anybody have an inclination to eat this? The answer is, we do what is harmful for us when we want to prove a point and when we need an outlet for, an ang- for our anger. When I'm angry, I won't do things that are good for me. I will do things that I perceive will hurt you. When I'm angry, I'm not interested in my own benefit. I'm interested in revenge. And even if revenge undermines me, it's irrelevant. The satisfaction of gaining back my sense of identity, which in my imagination has been bruised or destroyed by you, at least from my perspective, I need revenge. And even if it's not called revenge, but in the world of anger, I am so angry, I can't even think about who I am. I can't even think about my benefits. All I could think is, what I can do to get you angry. That's what I think of. If I have to eat something disgusting, so be it. That's the first issue, the first challenge that prevents a lot of people and puts them into despair when they're dealing with students or children. They're so angry. He's so angry. She's so upset. She'll never talk to you. She'll never talk to me. That's where the Torah chooses the first time it speaks about reaching out to children. The next is blood. The Pasuk says in Parish Yisrael, be strong and don't eat blood. Why do you have to be strong not to eat blood? So the Sifri says, Hard for us to understand. The Jews were entrenched in the eating of blood. It was an addiction. This is the second source of education. You look at this child, you'll say, you can never reach these children. They're addicted. They're spaced out. Their mind and hearts has been abducted by demonic forces or inner demonic voices. It's hopeless. 
when this was. When Moshe told the Jews in Parshish Re'eh, Rak Chazak, Lebilti Yechol Hadam, why does he say, be strong and don't eat blood? Do you have to be strong not to eat blood? I have to be strong not to eat cake. Chazak Lebilti Yechol Ugot, I got it. Chazak Lebilti Yechol, a whole pie of pizza. What's Chazak Lebilti Yechol Adam? I'm not going to eat blood. Right? Why does Moshe say, be strong, don't eat blood? Be strong, don't eat carbs. <laughs> be strong, don't eat sugar. I get it. What's be strong, don't eat blood? Is the charaya? At that period, many were entrenched. It was a different culture. Blood was the thing to do. It was a fad. It was a fad. Some people eat kale. Some people eat potato chips. Some people eat black and whites. Some people ate blood. I eat almost all of them. What? I don't discriminate. Exactly. When you eat meat that's not kashed, you eat blood. And certainly when you eat liver, you're eating a lot of blood. Yes. One second, I'm not finished. I'm not finished. Deuteronomy 12.23 Rashi quotes it. Rabbi Yudas says they were so entrenched that the Torah has to say Chazak. Chazak. That's the view of Rabbi Yudas. Okay, Rabbi Shimon ben Azai has his view, but we're quoting the view of Rabbi Yudas quoted in Rashi in Parshas Re'eh. That's the second challenge. You say, these kids, these students, these teenagers, these youngsters, these men, these women, you can't touch them. You can't get close to them. They are entrenched in a very dark world of habits, bad habits, that become second habits, they become second nature, and then they could take over regular nature. This is the second source for Chinuch. In this mitzvah of blood, you would think, it's hopeless, and reach out to the youngsters. And then there's the third, Tumas Meis, the impurity that comes from contact with a corpse, which represents what? Deadness. The mace is lifeless. Tumas Meis means the result of lifelessness. It's basically a person who's emotionally dead, apathetic, lifeless, numb, frozen, paralyzed, stagnated. All of life is just one endless experience of boredom and monotony. As I once told you, the best definition of consciousness that I ever heard was, what is consciousness? The annoying time between naps. (laughs) So for these people, the nap is the center. Unfortunately, there's a few minutes between one nap and another nap, we call it consciousness, and then we go to therapy to figure out that time. But the best thing is just to stay napping. Some people would like to nap forever. And some say, you have this kid, you have this teenager, she's dead, he's dead, there's nothing here. There's no emotional life, there's no interest, there's no vitality. They're not even interested in living. Tumas meis, the ultimate impurity that comes from lifelessness. The Torah says here again, This is where the mitzvah of education is set.
They once asked the Toldos Yaakov Yosef. Toldos Yaakov Yosef was a student of the Baal Shem Tev. The Baal Shem Tev instituted that his Hasidim, his disciples, should meet from time to time what was called by Hasidim of Fabrengen. What that meant was not really to sing. It was more what people call today a 12-step program. It was originated by the Baal Shem Tev. People don't know that. But it wasn't for addicts. <laughs> it was for people because everybody is an addict. What do I mean? Life is challenging for everybody. Everybody has challenges and habits and skeletons that we have to deal with. Present company excluded, but maybe one or two know what I'm talking about. Including your speaker. So, your presenter. They asked them, how did the Baal Shem Tov justify this? It's taken away from the time of learning. This is what they asked the Toldos Yaakov Yosef. So he said, on the spot... The Gemara says in Ksuvus 17, Mevatlin Talmutaira over Hoitsos Hames Vachnosas Kala. A Jew who sits and learns is allowed to stop learning for two reasons. They're taking out a mace to be buried, to go to the Levaya, to carry the corpse, to bury it. You could stop learning. Olachnosas Kala. A Kala is going to get married. You could come escort the Kala, marry her off. Hoitsos Hames Vachnosas Kala. There's two reasons you could stop learning. So he said every halacha has a concrete interpretation and a spiritual interpretation. You're allowed to stop learning to do two things. To take out the dead corpse from people's hearts. People are dead inside. They learn, they daven, they do mitzvahs. But they're dead. They're lifeless. They do it by rote. They do it robotically. They may do the right thing and it's wonderful. But often they're not alive. There's no real passion. They do it because they have to do it. Or as intellectually it gives them such pleasure. Or for conformity, or for the parents, or for the family, or they're being supported. But there's no chius inside. They're not living people. Especially if they have a lot of issues they never dealt with. So now they're not only not, not alive, they're really dead. Because they have to die. Because if they're alive, it's going to be very scary. They, they force themselves to die. Because when you're dead, you don't have to deal with your skeleton because you are supposed to be a skeleton. When I went to Manchester the first time, I love Manchester, but the rabbi of Manchester, he greeted me and he said, Rabbi Jacobson, you're welcome to Manchester. Mark Twain supposedly said that before he dies, he wants to move to Manchester because the transition from there won't be noticeable. (laughs) So some people, so some people, somebody asked me, somebody asked me, Somebody asked me why New Yorkers are always in a bad mood. I said, you would also be if the light at the end of your tunnel was New Jersey. So you know, sometimes when people... I love New Jersey, don't worry. I love New Jersey, I love New York. When people... When the light at the end of the tunnel is... Whatever. It's sometimes easier to die. That's one thing. The second thing is Achnasas Kala. What's Kala? Kala comes from the word klois hanefesh. Kolsanafshi, a desire of the soul. Says so Yalada stop learning in order to take out the deadness of a Jewish heart and to bring in a kala, to bring in a yearning, an ava, a love to Hashem, a love to life, a love to yourself, a love to your soul. Because that was the purpose of it. The purpose of it, if you want the learning to be real learning, to be infused with life, you need to help people get rid of the mace and bring in the kala into their lives. Told us Yaakov Yosef said. So you have three sources for chinuch. If the Torah would have chosen any other mitzvah, it wouldn't be able to convey this message. It was targeting 
those very difficult situations where people write constantly off children. They constantly write off students. They constantly write off teenagers or young men or young women of any age. This one is too angry. Stay away. Stay away. He's dangerous. Stay away. Let him remain locked up in his house, in his room for 39 years. And this one is too addicted. There's no way you could reach him or her. And this one is too lifeless and paralyzed. So now you open up a chumash and you say, where does it speak about education? Those three children. Those who eat things that are disgusting only because they're angry. Those who eat blood because they're addicted. And those who have contact with a corpse and become impure, which psychologically and emotionally represents a certain numbness. But how does one reach these people? The answer in the words, lahazhir g'doylem alaktanam. The word lahazhir in Hebrew means two things. One, from the word azhara, caution, admonition. But it also comes from the word... Zohar. What's Zohar? Light. Luminescence. Zohar or Rakia, the brightness of heaven. Zohar. The book of Zohar is called the book of light. Zohar HaKadosh. Rabbi Shimon Bayechai's book. The book of Zohar. Lahazik Doylem HaLaktanim means that the Gdoylem have to bring in light into the Ktanim's world. The problem of addiction is a person has no light. There's no light at the end of the tunnel. I once told somebody, there's light at the end of the tunnel. He says, Rabbi Jacobson, I know the problem is I don't have a tunnel. <laughs> if I would have a tunnel, I'd have light at the end of a tunnel. I don't got a tunnel. I have to be able to introduce light. Both light as in light, and light as in light. <laughs> I can't be so heavy. The more heaviness, the more toxicity, the more depression. I need to bring in light to the ktanam. When I could bring in light, I can reach very deep places in a person's soul. The Hasidic masters used to say, Lahazik Doilam Alaktanam is not only children and adults, it's in every person's life. Every person in your life, you have times when you're in a state of Gdoilim and in a state of Ktanam. State of Gdoilim is a state known in Kabbalah as Moichin the Godless, when your consciousness is fully expansive. You make decisions from a place of empowerment. Imagine you are in your most optimal state of existence and you make decisions from that place. That's called G'daylem. K'tana means, I'm in a state of narrowness, of smallness. And I have to make decisions from that place. You know what the decisions look like, right? When we make decisions out of weakness, out of a sense of inferiority, out of a sense of despair, of katnus, of smallness, of pettiness. It's different types of decisions. But we all fluctuate. There's moments when you feel good about yourself and your relationship with God, and there's moments you feel horrible about yourself. The moments of godless have to illuminate and inform the moments of katnus. From the times of gdoilim, you have to be able to glean wisdom and perspective on the times of katanim. Now I may be in a petty state, but before I make a decision, I have to look at the moments of gdoilim that that should inform, inform my decision. How does one then introduce education in these three areas? And the answer is, Lahazir. I have to bring in Zoyer, I have to bring in light. But that's all based on one premise. And that's the key premise here. The reason I'm bringing in light is because I'm not bringing in my light. Lahazir g'doylem alaktana means I have to introduce the child or the young man or woman to his or her own light. 
The Pasuk says, Shloyma Melech says, and you probably remember the song, Shma b'ni Musa Ravicha Listen, my son, to the rebuke of your father. Don't abandon the Torah of your mother. You see the difference of how he describes a father and a mother? Listen to the rebuke of your father. Don't abandon the Torah of your mother. Why doesn't he say, listen to the rebuke of your father, and listen to the rebuke of your mother? For the father, it's rebuke. For the mother, it's Torah. For the father, you have to listen to it. And for the mother, he doesn't say, listen to the Torah of your mother. Don't abandon the Torah of your mother. Why? You know why? It's very deep. There's two ways we learn about wisdom in this world. There's wisdom that's taught to us. That's not real wisdom. There's wisdom that we already know deep inside. Here's the rule. How do you know somebody's teaching you authentic Judaism? How do you know somebody's teaching you real Torah? If everything they say, you knew already. It's like a song that you heard, you fell in love with it. You forgot it. You forgot it, but if somebody starts singing it, what do you say? Aha! Aha! That's it! You forgot it, but you didn't really forget it. Your conscious memory forgot it. Your subconscious memory still remembers it. When somebody sings it, you say, that's the one. When somebody sings other songs, that's not the one. That's not the one. We hear a lot of things in life. We hear a lot of things. Right? There's things, when you hear it, you say, it's not that, it's not, it's not. Maybe a good song, but it's not my song. And then there's, ah, ah, that's the song. And it doesn't take time. You don't need to go through CAT scans, and you don't need therapy, you don't need examinations. You know the song when you hear it. Chazal say in Nida 30, page 30, that in the womb of the mother, every child learns the whole Torah, and then we forget it. We forget it. How do we forget it? You come out of the womb, and there's a malach. What does the malach do? Satra al he gives you a smack on the mouth. That's the first patch. Boop. And you forget the whole Torah. So now I ask you, what's the point? If God wants me to forget it, why does He want me to learn it? If He wants me to learn it, why does He want me to forget it? Now you understand why. Because since I learned it, it's all there. Now when I'm going to hear it, I'm going to go, aha. That's it. That resonates. Real Torah resonates. If it doesn't resonate may not be real Torah, or may not be communicated in the way it should be communicated. Real Torah you already know. Real wisdom, divine wisdom, it's in you already. That's why real teaching is never talking talking at the people. It's not even talking to the people. It's talking in the people. It's revealing, it's almost, you know what real teaching is? It's basically lifting up a mirror to the student and telling them to look into it. It's showing them what they have inside of them. It's not a mirror that shows them their external features, it's a mirror that shows to them their inner wisdom, but they're seeing it within themselves. That's what it is. And that's why Shloyma says, Shma b'ni Musa ravicha. Listen to the rebuke of your father. That's the wisdom that's taught to you in life. Don't do this, don't do this, invest here, don't invest here. This is how you behave, this is how you not behave. It's good. But You don't have to listen to the Torah of your mother. You know it already. Don't let go of it. It's inside of you. Don't let go of your own Torah. The Torah of your mother. The Torah of the... Ima is your own mother. Also the mother, the Torah you learned in the womb of your mother. And therefore the Torah that you have in you as a mother as well. The Torah of motherhood. 
What's the Torah of motherhood? The Torah of motherhood is not the Torah that I teach you by telling you something. It's the Torah that I don't have to teach you. I just help you access what you already know inside. Lahazir G'doylem Alaktanim means that the G'doylem revealed the Zohar, the light in the K'tanim. If you don't have that light, then anger, bad habits, addiction, depression are really hopeless situations. Unless I can somehow do something and then it's still very questionable. But if I trust that you have the light inside, I don't only trust, I know that that light is there, the Lahazir is there. My job is to reveal your light. I never give up on any soul. There's no such a thing. The source of Chinuch is these three children. You never give up. Now you understand why the Tzdukim got so upset? What's the difference of Shabbos and Yom Tif? They said Shabbos is Shabbos. You know why? God makes it holy. Humans are not holy. The Tzdukim believed in an absolute duality between the divine and the human being. Which is why they didn't believe in Chiyas HaMesim. Chiyas HaMesim means that the body is holy. The body has to live eternally just like the soul. That's the idea of resurrection of the dead. You know, we all talk emunat, chiyas hameisim. What does chiyas hameisim really mean? It means just like the soul never dies, the body also really doesn't die. Even though it died, it comes back. In other words, when we bury a body after it dies, we're not putting the body into the earth where it decomposes. It's like planting a seed. Why is burial so pivotal in Jewish life? What's wrong with cremation? What's the big deal? The body is dead. What are you going to do with it? It's dead. The answer is, kvura is planting a seed. When you plant a seed in the earth, it also decomposes. But what happens? A tree grows. The burial ultimately produces tchiyas It produces resurrection. But it's based on the idea that the body shares holiness with the soul. The soul is eternal. The body also is eternal. That's a fascinating idea. Contrary to those who believe that the body is evil, and detestable, and abominable, and needs to be crushed, and certainly ignored, and eclipsed, and the body is the source of all evil. No, no, no. The body actually has the secrets of existence. If the body is seen in the right way, it has the same eternity like the soul. That's the concept. The Tzdukim didn't believe in Chiyas HaMesim, because they didn't believe that God and man can become one. They didn't believe in Torah Shabal Peh. What's the idea of Torah Shabal Peh? that the human mind is capable of fathoming Torah. They said all of Judaism was given on Sinai in the written Torah. The oral tradition, which is developed through human imagination and creativity, loyal to the formula of Torah, they said man and God have an absolute gulf. They never meet. Shabbos and Yom Tif, you can't compare the two. Shabbos is divine. Yom Tif is human. It's inferior. Chazal rejected this on all counts. The Yisoyed of Yiddishkeit is that man and woman inherently are divine. The human being's soul is a chelik eleka mimal. And the body is also chosen directly by God and therefore through work, discipline, and inner, inner avoider, a person can find the godliness within themselves, the Kedusha within themselves. And therefore Yom Tif could be called Shabbos. Even though Yom Tif comes through whom? Through people? The Jews make Yom Tif, not heaven. Earth makes Yom Tif. It has the same holiness. Even though it's different. On Shabbos, you're not allowed to cook food. Shabbos, all the food has to be prepared. Yom Tif, you're allowed to cook food. In other words, they said, Yom Tif is a physical day. Yom Tif is a body day. Yom Tif is a brute day. 
They said, no, Yom Tov is Shabbos. Memachas HaShabbos is Yom Tov. The food of Yom Tov is also holy. In Judaism, food is capable of becoming part of a sacred experience with one condition. As long as you eat to live, you don't live to eat. The problem is many of us don't eat to live. We live to eat. Right? When is the next meal? Oh, when is the next meal? We don't eat to live. The purpose of life is to eat. Friday night, Shabbos day, the Kiddush, the Cholent, the Shabbos, the Mitzvah, Upshenish. That's a travesty. That's a travesty and a tragedy. It's a very deep distortion of godliness, of Judaism. But when you eat to live, then it assumes the quality of life. So therefore, the Tzedukim denied the Kedusha Atzimus, the inherent holiness that exists within the being of every human being, and therefore within the being of every child. So therefore, once you seem like you're cut off, you're cut off. That's only if I don't believe that you have your own light. But if I know that you have your own light, and that light is eternal in you, and it's impossible for you to lose that light, then there's no such a thing as somebody being cut off. There's always the opportunity of that in any situation, the adult, biologically, and the spiritual adult, emotionally, sometimes you have children who are adults and adults who are children. So the adult biologically and emotionally can illuminate the cotton even when you're dealing with rodents and blood and tumor because he or she knows that inherently you are dealing with a child, with a youngster who is a piece of infinity, a piece of God, a fragment of divinity on earth. Have a wonderful week. This class is brought to you by the yeshiva.net. Please help us continue the classes. Make even a small contribution at www.theyeshiva.net slash donate.